Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes, and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Hello, welcome to the Times Red Box podcast. I'm not Matt Chorley. He is off all this week uh, trying to hoover through some of his spa vouchers, which he's got lying around. I'm Luke Jones, sitting in all week on the podcast and on the Times Radio show as well. Today on the podcast, we've got absolutely loads. We'll hear from our regular columnists. We're going to think about authority through the pandemic and whether it's changed. Dominic Cummings said way back at the beginning of the pandemic, officials didn't think any of us would go necessarily for the harsh restrictions Has that changed? We will hear from a former uh, Supreme Court justice, a former top cop, and also a sociologist on that as well. Also, a feature we're doing all this week is our pre-pandemic professors. We're hearing so often from uh, experts, doctors, virologists, immunologists, professors of public health, but who are they? What were they doing before the pandemic? It turns out, very interesting lives. One of them, and can you guess which member of SAGE, is a huge fan of Amdram and uh, does it in their spare time. We'll find out about that this week. Anyway, let's kick things off with our columnists today, Rachel Sylvester and Libby Purvis. The, the issue on the front page of the paper is about, of course, the, the unlocking on, on the 21st of June for England and the debate that's raging and will rage within government. I, I have a theory which I was spouting off about on, um, on breakfast over the weekend, which is, is, surely, Rachel, this is the easiest thing to delay. Obviously, it will upset lots of hospitality. It means that they can't necessarily turn a profit. It will, might screw over theatres. But in terms of the things which we were desperately wanting, seeing our friends indoors, hugging our family, we can already do that. Boris Johnson is always the king of wishful thinking, isn't he? And he's desperate to give us all back our freedom. He's desperate to be the mayor in Jaws who let everyone keep going swimming, even though the sharks were swimming in the water. And that's why he keeps delaying, he kept delaying the lockdowns and he'll be desperate not to delay um, opening up totally. This is a sort of freedom day, isn't it? Independence day, Mm. as the tabloids will call it. Um, So to delay that will be seen as a... Um, a sort of defeat for that optimism and that boosterism that his MPs are desperate for him to show as well. But I think you're right. It's it's just got to be taken on the basis of what's sensible and what's what's right, not on the basis of what's nice and ha- makes us all feel happy. Yeah, Libby, would you agree with that? That basically, whatever the, the science is saying, we should just go with that and, and deal with it. Well, I think what's interesting, and we we were saying this the other day when I had a go at being Hugo Rifkins, is that actually it's going to be a trade-off. You Mm. know, that they'll be discussing now, shall we say to everyone, look, you can all take your masks off, but there's still distancing? Or do you say, okay, we're going to let go distancing, but everybody please in masks? Um, you know, all these things, because it's it's a fine tune again. The entertainment business really does need to know what's happening. You know, I've been in two theatres, you know, in the, this, this recent reopening. And, you know, you can't, it cannot be economically okay with that great scatter of people and all the great spaces between. They need to know. 
and they need to know in time, you know, so they can cancel rehearsals or, or you know, reduce budgets or whatever. And I, I think this, this waiting and waiting and waiting to know is very, very difficult. I would rather they said something now and said, look, actually, it's going to be another couple of weeks. Live with it. You know, the, the uncertainty hurts. Yes. Um, elsewhere, a different story, um, Rachel, which we think about for you because of um, obviously your work with the, the Times' mm. Education Committee, is this question of school admission rules and this study from the London School of Economics finding that children born in the summer are being unfairly categorised by schools as having uh, special educational needs. Again, it seems like just another, another issue with, with these admission rules. Yeah, it's really interesting. It's often the children who are the youngest, the ones born in the summer, mm. who end up not doing quite so well. And they're sort of unfairly castigized, castigated for that. Um, and I just think this, the whole thing is, is much too rigid. Uh, and teachers need to treat the pupils as an individual, really. Um, and there's also there's another separate itch, issue, which is the sort of categorizing people as special educational needs, um, when, you know, it's not necessarily doesn't need to be a sort of major diagnosis. They might just need a bit of extra support in one way or another, um, not to sort of downgrade people who need help, but just to say, actually, treat them as individuals rather than categories. But I thought the issue was that there were parents having a dreadful time trying to even get their child categorised as having special educational needs. So then also, is it the case that on the flip side, you've got children who are being you know, pushed onto this when they don't need to? Yes, that's right. It sort of works both ways. I think it also... part to do with sometimes the government's less keen for people to be categorised when it involves money, but it's more keen when it's a case of um, arranging the roles in the way that suits the school, perhaps. Uh, uh, I don't know, I haven't looked at the actual detail of this report, um, but it's definitely something that we're going to look at in the Commission, the whole uh, way in which SCN is, is dealt with. And one of the other things that you were looking at in the Commission, um, Lib, would be interested in your thoughts on this, was the idea of... Um, homework and uh, there was research that the commission did in fact 70 percent of teachers thought there was too much emphasis on homework and as a result uh, marking and there were many that believed that it was in primary schools in particular that this wasn't needed at all i think early early years homework is nonsense and it always was and we used to rebel against it quite a lot um so I, i'm i'm absolutely with the people who are against it can i just come briefly back to the um special educational mm. needs thing what is so awful is the idea that we have to regard all children as exactly the same um and therefore special educational needs get seen as a slur i i can always remember when my children were small they had they had a sort of remedial remedial groups would sometimes have to meet i remember my son coming home and saying i said would you would your friend you know so let's call him andy would he like to come uh, to tea today and he said oh no he can't come today and it's a pity he's coming tomorrow but today he's got help for the weird i said what <laughs> they said he goes to help for the weird on wednesdays and it transpired that without the children weren't judging but for some reason they'd all decided that it was called help for the weird i told the head teacher this and he practically had a conniption uh, because, but the curious thing, but but that that is the problem that it starts to be regarded as help for the weird, and then people start to want their children not to be categorised as SEN, whereas children, parents who really really need the extra help, and whose children do need it, you know that they have to fight for it. it. It is an absurd situation, and it all comes from the incredible stiffness and sameness which is imposed on the idea of what a child should do at a certain age. Mm. You know that that needs shaking up children are individuals they grow really differently and that's the case rachel across loads of different other parts of, of schooling isn't it that, that what libby just described there absolutely and you look at the sort of exam system which expects children to produce the absolute appropriate exam correct answer with a mark that fits into the mark scheme and actually makes it really difficult for teachers to hold creative discussions or, or prompt their curiosity uh, so there's a sense of rigidity through the whole system uh, and actually what businesses need from children who are leaving the school system is creativity and the ability to communicate with each other, social skills, all those things that are being kind of drummed out of them by the kind of, um, you know, Dessin Rose rote learning approach that we've got at the moment. Mm. In fact, I remember I had a history teacher who was very fond of doing that sort of slightly history boys style kind of, we're not really going to think about the curriculum, but we're just going to have lots of 
lots of chats and debates about things, but actually on the sort of flip side, it was us, the pupils, being like, just tell us what are the what are the questions? What are the what topics? Are the what are the things? Know? What is the marking scheme? <laughs> How do I do this? Tell me, man. The little girl. Anyway, um, Libby, tell us about Friends and sitcoms, because I think since we last spoke, I watched the Friends reunion and I absolutely loved it. To the extent that last night I watched about half of series one of Friends. I went right back to the beginning and I loved every second of it. Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, I, I just, because I was jumping off from the Friends thing to say in general how fascinating it is, how sitcom is actually quite a great art form in itself and people should not sort of say, oh, documentaries, oh, I'm doing serious drama. Sitcoms are marvellous. You can actually track social change through sitcoms. Mm. I had a lot of fun looking up dates. You know, The Good Life happened uh, uh, and, and John Seymour's self-sufficiency book was happening at the same time but at the same time as Tom Good escaped from his corporate life to dig stuff in the garden we had Reggie Perrin's escape you know the fall and rise of Reginald Perrin who was again running away from corporate life and from all that thing and there was a mood in the in the country at a time and it sort of it really fitted that and then there was a sort of really boring boom in the 70s of sort of Terry and June type domesticity because people were worried that the 60s were moving too fast and the most recent thing that's happened is really riveting which is the way that emphasis has moved away from marriages in sitcoms to parenting you know we've had yes. modern family we've had britain's outnumbered uh, you know where the parents are completely being mm. trashed by the children motherland. and now we've got angry dad in martin freeman in breeders we've got motherland with the horrible <laughs> schoolgate parents yeah. and um you know there's been friday night dinners about the sort of the, the older the older grown-up kids in the family and there's a, a whole new one on Apple TV called, called Trying, about an un, infertile young couple trying to adopt a baby and going through all the social services. So suddenly parenting is the hot thing everyone's mm. worrying and thinking and writing books about. And the sitcoms come up and make us laugh at it. And it, sometimes it is necessary to laugh at the things we're all fretting about most. It's great. And I should have mentioned the reason that I brought this up, Lou, was because obviously you've, you've written a fantastic column about it in the paper today. And interesting, Rachel, on that point, in terms of it reflecting the, the sort of times we're in, when all the Dominic Cummings stuff was happening in the middle of last week, um, I think Chris Addison, was it on Times Radio that Chris Addison, who was obviously part of the thick of it, was again talking about the, the way that sitcom and, and uh, the mood of the nation have to match. And he was saying, basically, you could, people, all these people are saying, oh, you should revive the thick of it now. He's like, no, no, you, you literally couldn't do that because <laughs> yeah. it's a completely different political temperature uh, that yes, we were in when, when that, that came the, out. Um... The politics has got even madder than the thick of it, hasn't it? Yeah. And it, I definitely think there's often a case of life imitating art as well as art imitating life with sitcoms. <laughs> um, and I, Libby's absolutely right. I, I thought it was partly because of the way I've grown up. So when I was in my 20s, I loved Friends and I watched it all the time. But I actually now not that interested in the revival, but I adore Modern Family and, um, mm. you know, um, Outnumbered. And I watch all of those with my children and they obviously think it's hilarious because we're just like the hopeless parents the whole time. <laughs> um, but it is yeah. partly a reflection of your own life. But I think it's also, you're right, Libby, it's the obsession we have now as a society with parenting rather than marriage. And it's all about you know helicopter parents or pushy parents we or need, tiger mothers. We need more good. We need more good school ones now. But I was just thinking, um, Rachel, I mean, as a, as a sort of political expert, do you not find that uh, when you watch very, very old episodes of Yes Minister and Yes Prime Minister, they're nearly always horribly topical? You know, no, <laughs> there's always absolutely. something still going on. <laughs> exactly. There's always some bust up with the BBC or, you know, and it's always the civil service. So the great unchanged institution, aren't they? They're the permanent government at the establishment that are there throughout and the reason that's so brilliant is it's satirizing politics but it's also satirizing the the kind of nature of power and institutions and the way in which actually the sort of establishment figures stay there and they're the permanent um fixture and, and, hackers, and hackers, of... yeah hackers political advisor you know that the woman the political advisor the very yes. tough woman is always desperately at odds with sir humphrey <laughs> i watched that the other yeah. night i was falling about saying nothing yes. changes <laughs> exactly uh, well and of course all po politicians adore the thick of it because they see themselves satirized in it and they quite like the you know the idea of the civil service actually in charge some of them anyway that was our columnists, Libby Purvis and Rachel Sylvester. Next, our pre-pandemic professor, Professor Linda Bold. 
For almost as long as we've had COVID-19, we have had scientists on our airways telling us about it, how to manage it, how to save lives, how to return to normal. Many advise government and Times Radio listeners briefing us on the latest twists and turns about how much do we know about them? Do you know uh, what a behavioural scientist actually does, what an immunologist actually does? Do you know that some of them do yoga and Amdram? Well, we do, because each week we're going to hear from one of the scientific scientific names we've come to know and love this past year and a half about them, their career, their hobbies, what on earth they were doing before the pandemic that meant they now spend their evenings explaining the difference between viral mutation B117 and B161 to John Pienaar. Today, Professor of Public Health at Edinburgh University, Linda Bold. Linda Bold is a Professor of Public Health. In a moment, we'll hear from Professor Linda Bold. Uh, Linda professor Bold, of Professor of Public Health at Edinburgh University. Linda Bold, who's Professor of Public Health at Edinburgh University. Linda Bold, Professor of Public Health at Edinburgh University, who I met in a cafe in Edinburgh. So I have the, um, the Bruce and John Usher Chair in Public Health, which is the oldest chair in public health in the UK. And we had the first Department of Public Health in the UK here in Edinburgh. It's called the Usher Institute. So that's where I sit. And we also have general practice in, in our institute, data, data informatics, things like that. So we're quite a big institute in the medical school um, at the University of Edinburgh. So that's where I'm based. And I've also been seconded to Cancer Research UK as for the last seven years as their cancer prevention advisor. So I have two different roles. Yes, and we'll get to some of those in a moment. But first... Um Born in Edinburgh, where we are now. That's right, born here, and uh, my parents emigrated to Canada when I was nine. Uh, so I spent my, you know, most of my childhood there, first degree in Toronto, and then came back uh, to the UK, to Edinburgh, to do a PhD. Lived in Bath, Glasgow, Kent, um, other places, and then eventually got back to Scotland in 2011. And in terms of your studies and your research early-ish on, um, you were looking at social care community care is that right and that is still something which seems to vex politicians health leaders everyone it's incredible what were you looking at at the time yeah so when i did my phd it was on health policy and i was looking at older people leaving hospital so we moved to a postdoc in 1997 in a Department of Health-funded unit looking at social care reform. One of the things which you've uh, worked across has been smoking and how to get people to stop smoking. Explain how did you first, how did you first get into that in a, in, a, in a big way? Sure, well, that's where I started in public health because in 97 I did the first study of what the stop smoking services when they were set up, small study, and then got involved in much bigger studies, so got into nicotine and tobacco research. I think the bottom line is what most of my work pre-pandemic has been about is preventing chronic disease. So that's cancer, diabetes, heart disease, the things that actually kill most people in the UK pre this awful year we've been through. And, and so for me, working in smoking cessation, nicotine, tobacco research was really about promoting health. And I think it's the one thing people can do for their own health if they stop smoking that makes the biggest difference. But in terms of smoking, at the time when you, when you started doing that research in the late 90s, was it an uphill battle? Yes, I mean, I always say we had a really important report from the Royal College of Physicians in 1962 called Smoking and Health. If you look at that now, it has all the policies in it that we eventually implemented, but it took 50 years to get them all. So like smoke-free laws are talked about in there, tobacco taxes, banning advertising, etc. So it really has been, unlike a pandemic where you have an immediate threat to people's health, things like cancer are longer-term threats. So dealing with the causes of them doesn't win politicians votes often and so at every stage you have to move these little tiny baby steps and that's been the case through the 25 years I've worked you know in that. and how what do you think of the, of the situation now with with smoking we, we sort of seem to be aware of it less as a problem and I wonder is that because it's been overwhelmingly and sorted well, we've actually been phenomenally successful in the UK. We have the second high, second lowest rates of smoking in Europe. Let's remember, in the 50s and 60s, we had the highest rates of smoking in the world. So as a public health model, tobacco control is largely a success story. But we still have 80,000 people who die from smoking-related diseases in the UK every year. So we've not, you know, it's not totally tackled. But in contrast to some of the other big current threats, like overweight and obesity to people's health, um, we have made a lot of progress. Yeah. And in terms of the pandemic and obesity... The Prime Minister's scare was sort of relatively early on in the pandemic. We, you know, we're well past that now. Has our understanding improved of the link between obesity and COVID deaths, COVID hospitalisations, maybe why the UK has fared so badly in terms of excess deaths? 
I think it's one factor. There's multiple factors why we do, but I think there has been more of an awareness of that, and I think you see that in the in the obesity plan that the UK government published during the pandemic. They were willing to be a little bit more ambitious. Of course, we always want them to go further. I also think clinicians have a better understanding of that now. We've got great epidemiology that has just showed what a risk factor that is. The tricky thing with that risk factor, though, is you you must not stigmatize individuals. So it's you know. We talk about people living with obesity. You know, we need to use the right language and not alienate people because that never works. And do you sense, uh, do you sense a greater understanding, not only in government but in, in the general public, about that, or, or is there still a long way to go? I think people are talking about it more, and and you know, organisations like Cancer Research UK have tried to raise awareness with quite striking campaigns that have been controversial. I don't know if you ever remember the. The warnings about obesity that on a cigarette pack, sort of mocking that up. To, so sometimes shock tactics. I think, I think um, yes, I think there is maybe more of an understanding of the general public. But on the other hand, we've normalised that size. If you ask people in surveys what do they think a normal weight is and you show them pictures of human bodies, people will actually think that somebody who is overweight is, is a normal size and that's because two-thirds of adults in the UK are overweight or obese. So we've got a long, long way to go there. Um, but a bit like with smoking, these things can be changed. And in the next, well, let's hope we don't have another pandemic, Luke. <clears throat> but the next external threat, so there will be another zootonic disease and more infectious disease. Maybe what we can do, and this is kind of my objective emerging from this crisis and many of my colleagues, is align these two things. Let's talk about improving health and addressing external threats together and recognise that they're, they're, inter, they're interlinked. The two can't be separated. How has your sort of greatly expanded media profile settled with you? Has it been strange? It has been strange. I've always done a bit of that because of the areas I work in and the public and the press are interested. Um, but it's been pretty relentless this year. I mean, I, the last couple of weeks have been easier. I've had a couple of days off. But between February and March of this year, I had six days off, and that includes Christmas. <laughs> so, but, you know, think of, the, think of the clinicians at the front line and the people working in data and public health. They were, you know, under... And people working in retail. I mean, everybody, journalists was under huge pressure um, but yeah it was a bit strange I think the thing that I find strange most strange is that um, if you're talking a lot and people recognise that you've got something to say they want to hear your advice so it's the emails that I get from the public or even my neighbours in the park who stop me and ask me questions and I think well what kind of questions just how, how what, what do you think is going to happen looking ahead endless requests for a crystal ball uh, you know what, will I be able to go on holiday and, and, and you know or, or they talk about a family member who's been affected uh, during the pandemic so that's um, humbling I try not to overstep I'm not a clinician so I can't give advice clinical advice um, but that's been strange but I've, I've learned a lot I've actually learned a lot about how the media works and what the role of different people in the teams are and that's been fascinating so it's, it's been a privilege but I find it strange so we, we've had you on Times Radio so many times um, illuminating different parts of the pandemic for us but I remember the other day we had you on. I threw you a question at the end about um, travel. We just had some news on the on the green lights, traffic system, and moments later, I saw a ping from the press association, sort of UK national press service, and it was like Professor Linda Bold says this, and it was a whole. 300-word write-up on she said this, duh, 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 and then you see that picked up in papers and the like. But I personally find the thought of that terrifying. I wonder what you think of it. Yes, I think it is strange, isn't it? Well, I, I think one of the things I've learned is that journalists who are doing print or online print use radio as a way to structure a story. So you can say something quite small and neutral, but if they find it interesting and they can connect to other things, you know, they've got deadlines. They've got columns to fill. I'm going to ask you to get your crystal ball out again, but in terms of your own career, so don't think about um, the end of the pandemic or maybe the long tail of the, maybe the problems that the pandemic might cause for us. Look way beyond that. Is, is there an area that you'd really like to focus more on, do some more work on, look more, which maybe the pandemic has knocked you off course from or distracted you from maybe? I have been distracted from my core work. I'm very fortunate to have excellent colleagues working with me who've run... But, of course, a lot of our projects were paused. We couldn't, you know, collect saliva samples for nicotine studies or recruit patients. Um, in terms of looking ahead, as I said, what I'd like to do more of, I think I would be keen to continue some of the science communication because I think there's a role for that. 
Um, I started writing a column for one paper to, on science and health. Um, but I do want to go back to more of my core work. But as I said earlier, if, if I can make a small contribution to aligning our continued focus on future threats and infectious disease with continuing to improve the health of the population and try and keep arguing for bringing those two things together with clinicians, with governments, and internationally. I do a lot of global health work. Then that would be... Yeah, then I, I would feel that I was continuing to try and help or make some kind of difference. That was Professor Linda Bold from the University of Edinburgh. Uh, tomorrow we'll hear from Susan Mickey, uh, a behavioural psychologist, about her incredible career and also her parents as well, who were very, um, very big in science, big in IVF and robotics. Next, the pandemic and authority. What has it done to our relationship with authority? A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. I must give the British people a very simple instruction. You must stay at home. Every time you try to flex the rules, that could be fatal. do not play your part, our selfless police officers, they will enforce the regulations. How has the pandemic changed our relationship to authority? On the one hand, we've all been incredibly compliant in the face of unprecedented restrictions. But on the other hand, uh, issues of racial injustice, women's safety and anger at some of the restrictions, have seen wide-scale protests and, in many occasions, clashes with the police as well. We're thinking about this because, in his evidence last week, Dominic Cummings, uh, he of formerly working in Number 10 fame, claimed that the UK was slow to lock down because government officials did not believe that the public would accept more authoritarian restrictions on their freedom. Is he right? And what has the last year done to us in that respect, in terms of our relationship with authority. In a moment, we'll hear from a former Supreme Court justice and a former top cop. First, let's go live to Dominic Abrams, a professor of social psychology at the University of Kent. Morning. Morning. In terms of what Dominic Cummings was saying uh, to the uh, Common Select Committee last week, pre-pandemic, our relationship to the kind of restrictions that we've seen, uh, the kind of intervention from government, did he have a point well, I, I think, uh, yeah, there was an inference, I think, from earlier behavioural science that maybe people would be reluctant to give up all of their freedoms just like that. But I don't think um, behavioural science was advising that faced with a pandemic or a possible public catastrophe, that people would be reluctant to comply. So I think he probably does have a point. Uh, I think that the public would have been very willing to have acted quicker and sooner and with more certainty. And is there any geographical differences because because one of the things uh, that was reported last week was that there was the suggestion that uh, we're not like countries in, in, in Southeast Asia that actually when our, our response to to laws and restrictions is different, that that's what was Dominic Cummings uh, suggesting that that was what officials were saying uh, I think that there's it, it's certainly the case that in more uh, authoritarian or almost totalitarian situations that the public can be forced to do things more quickly and more 
more readily, but that doesn't mean that in more democratic or open countries that the public won't be willing to do things. I think it's a, it's a mistake to assume that one form of government is going to be effective and the other isn't. It's just mm. a question of how you apply the knowledge and the expertise you have to get people to go along with you. And that comes down to whether they think that what you're doing is in their and the public interest. So as we moved into the pandemic and we started to get actually research on, on, on what people were doing, the extent to which people were, were staying at home and the like, were you surprised? Uh, not really. I mean, there, there are two elements to why people would, would comply and behave sensibly. One was the extent to which they trusted the information coming from the government and from the scientific experts. And the other was the extent to which they thought there was a real danger and threat out there. So uh, at the beginning of the pandemic in lockdown one, people, I think, did trust the government. There was no one else to look to. The scientists were being fairly clear about what needed to be done. And it was also clear that the, the virus was very dangerous to a lot of people. So I think, you know, understandably, people went along with it. The problems, I think, emerged once we started coming out of lockdown one. And uh, there was a, a whole range of different sort of methods of unlocking down in different places with different messages about why you should or shouldn't behave in certain ways, encouragement to eat out, to help out, all kinds of things that I think very much muddied the water for people. And they mm. either became less concerned or their level of trust in the government messages started to decline. And then you start getting people questioning, why should I do this? Why shouldn't I do that? And so on. People questioning government messages, but what about people questioning what uh, government ministers were telling them, scientists were telling them, uh, police officers and police leaders were saying, NHS leaders? What, what is, obviously, there's lots at play in terms of who's telling you what to do. I think that it's partly who's telling you. I mean, people certainly had a, a much higher level of trust, for example, in their local area and local authorities, local police, local NHS than they did in the government, um, which is understandable because the local authorities would have a clearer sense of what makes sense in the place at the time. Um, I th think if people feel they're being asked to do something that's unreasonable, for example, to completely socially isolate when somebody else depends on your care or on your help mm. or when you depend on their help, um, people will then question that and say, well, surely you've got to put something else in place to enable me to carry on living uh, in a manageable way. And the government's I think, uh, failed to respond sufficiently early to make sure that people did have that capacity to cope with the requirements of lockdown. And so at that point, people started saying this is unreasonable or impossible. And some of them ended up uh, breaking the rules. And what about the argument that things went too far the other way and that actually we were all scared into over-following the rules. And in fact, I was surprised to learn that when in England we could start seeing people indoors, there was uh, one poll which suggested that only 39% of people in that first week had, had taken up that offer emerging out of this most recent lockdown to actually see someone else outside of their household indoors, which is incredible. Well, one of the, one, <laughs> one of the issues emerging from the uncertainty uh, and, and the constant flagging of new outbreaks, new variants, uh, changes in circumstances is, of course, People are reluctant to do anything too quickly. But also, I think particularly after this latest lockdown, uh, people have sort of embedded themselves in their homes. Um, they've got used to not going out, not meeting people. And it's kind of hard to reverse that pattern of behaviour very quickly. Mm. Um, I think it also depends on the density of the population where you are how much you're together with people who are just the same as yourself, for example, if you're just with the community of older people, all of whom have been doubly vaccinated, maybe you can be a bit more relaxed mm -hmm. than if you're in a very mixed situation, a teacher in a school or something like that. So, you know, it really does depend on the circumstances, how people will come out of this. But I think a lot of people have, have become very constrained in their behaviour and their what they see as possible for themselves, and it will take a while for them to recover and get back to functioning in, a, in the way we used to. Well, well, how long do you think that will take? And do you think there are things that will still stick with us for many years to come? Uh, I would hope some things would stick with us. I mean, coronavirus isn't the only health threat out there. I mean, the, the, the emphasis on hygiene and on good health practices, uh, the emphasis on protecting other people's lives, not just your own. I think those are really positive things to come out of the, the pandemic and one hope they would stick in... in you know, in hospitality venues, in our homes, in our behaviour and so forth. So there are things that will come out. Mm. But I think, it, you know, people will revert. We saw last summer, they reverted pretty quickly to, to uh, you know, rushing out to the beaches, um, yeah. trying to enjoy themselves as much as possible. And so that's bound to happen, I think, to some extent again.
Thank you for your time. Dominic Abrams, Professor of Social Psychology at the University of Kent. In a moment, we'll get the view uh, of the police uh, from a former top cop. First, let's go to Lord Sumption, a former Supreme Court Justice. Good morning. Good morning. Of course, you've been very critical of, of uh, many of the restrictions in the past, but I wonder if we, if you could go right back to the very beginning, that first lockdown, how I started with Professor Abrams there. Uh, the comments by Dominic Cummings this week suggesting that at the very beginning, before the first lockdown, um, <coughs> the understanding was that actually as a British public, we were not going to go along with the types of restrictions that we saw in South East Asia or even the kind of things that we were seeing um, not too far away in Italy. I don't think that that's a picture that I recognise from reading the sage minutes of that period. I mean, the reality is that if everybody had been willing to do this voluntarily, coercion would have been unnecessary. Uh, the object of coercion uh, was to uh, try and force a different pattern of behaviour on people who did not regard it as necessary uh, and weren't willing. And in order to target those people, the government deliberately used exaggeration uh, to ramp up fear. I think this was partly in order to justify the lockdown <clears throat> and partly in order to induce people to comply with it. And there's a noticeable change of tone from the scientists. Chris Whitty, before the lockdown was announced by the Prime Minister on the 23rd, was giving reassuring messages. He was giving a balanced view, as I see it, uh, of what the risks were and who was at risk. The tone changes completely after the lockdown to the altogether more hysterical approach of government messaging thereafter. There are lots of examples of this, but the worst of them was the exaggeration of the gravity of the disease by pretending that it was an indiscriminate killer, when in fact, if you were under 60 and in good health, the symptoms were likely to be mild or non-existent. And we know from the SAGE minutes that that was a deliberate policy. On the 22nd of March, uh, SAGE Spy B Committee advised uh, <clears throat> that it was important to have uh, tough, emotional and hard-hitting messages uh, in order to persuade people that they could not rely on the fact uh, that they were in good health uh, and relatively young. Now, that is the point at which state information moves from informing people to deliberately trying to frighten them. It's, to my mind, not terribly surprising to find uh, that a government which has adopted what is essentially a totalitarian method of suppressing the disease, a lockdown, uh, ends up by using totalitarian measures as, uh, in other ways in order to get itself obeyed. But, but, Remember that fear has always been the chief instrument uh, of the totalitarian state and propaganda is its technique. But of course, but what the government does and says is just one side of the equation, isn't it? How we react and what we do about it is another and They're not unconnected. No, I know, but, but are you not doing the British public a disservice by suggesting that we were completely um, at the at the whim of what the government was telling us? And actually, do you think... I haven't suggested that. I haven't suggested that. I was going to say, do you not think that it was, um, it was a good thing that, that actually the vast majority of the population in those first few months facing this crisis actually thought, even if it isn't of no risk to myself, I'll do something for the greater good and, and go along with these incredibly restrictive um, rules? I don't think that it is ever a good thing to mislead people. Um, and if that is, uh, I mean, I'm, I have no sympathy at all for the suggestion that uh, in the public interest, uh, we must lie. That cannot ever be justified. Uh, um, after all, Dr. Goebbels thought that what he was saying was in the public interest. Are you equating what the government was doing in lockdown one with the Nazis? No, of course I'm not. Uh, I'm simply pointing out uh, that uh, uh, the, the view that telling lies or exaggerating facts mm. or tendentiously selecting them in the public interest is always mistaken. The first duty of government is to be balanced and truthful uh, and everything else is subordinate to that. I think that if you want to know why people are losing trust in government messaging, it's because they have discovered that that wasn't always very reliable. Losing trust to what extent? And and if it's the case that, as you were saying, the government have have lied and misled us, I wonder what you fear that the long-term impacts of that will be. Because outside of a pandemic context, it surely is important that, that people believe what the government does and, and do what they say. I think it's important that they believe what the government uh, says, and therefore very unfortunate if the government abuses the trust by saying things that they have no reason to believe. Uh, 
Um, uh, whether it's a good thing for people to do what the government says is a quite different issue. But my uh, strong view is that uh, it's an issue on which everybody is entitled to make up his own mind. Uh, mm. I do not accept that we are all instruments of government policy. Uh, I think that ultimately it is a matter for each person to decide uh, with the best information available uh, what course he should adopt. But, but I just wonder, again, casting things sl slightly f far in the future, uh, to what extent this is going to hamper governments in the future? Well, it will clearly hamper the recovery. Uh, most polling evidence indicates that the British are more frightened by COVID uh, than other European countries. Uh, and that is because our government has taken uh, a much less uh, balanced view uh, than communication from governments in other countries. Now, I don't think this is exclusively the government's responsibility. I think that the media has tended to amplify the government's message, chiefly because what is spectacular and alarming makes better copy than what is reassuring. So it's not all the government's fault, but the government is at the heart of it. Mm. And I was just interested, there's a story in the papers over the weekend, which um, I, I'd be keen to get your view on in terms of uh, keeping holding the government to account about all of this. Uh, a former uh, top prosecutor is, has taken legal advice on whether the Department for Health um, is guilty of corporate manslaughter with regards to the uh, situation that happened in care homes. Do you think that's a, a wise route to go down? No, I don't. Uh, I, think, I think we've, using the criminal law, which is a blunt instrument, is usually a mistake, and it's particularly uh, a mistake in that context. Uh, the test for corporate manslaughter uh, is a very exacting one. Uh, and although I have been uh, a prominent critic of what the Department of Health has been doing, I don't believe for a moment that they're guilty of it. Thank you very much for your time this morning. That's Lord Sumption, former Supreme Court Justice. Uh, still on the line is uh, Professor Dominic Abrams, uh, Professor of Social Psychology at the University of Kent. I wonder what you make of that, um, Professor Abrams, uh, somebody who was uh, right at the top of our of our legal world in the UK, um, it, the view he was laying out. Um, <laughs> well, I guess I would beg to differ slightly. I mean, I think I think the government was receiving a lot of advice and it was trying to find the best scientific consensus that it could before moving forward. It probably made some mistakes in some of its decisions. But on the other hand, we all make mistakes when we're trying to tackle complicated situations. Uh, I, I do think that um, there was perhaps a, an over expectation that people would do things that were, were actually unmanageable or difficult and insufficient support. I think the whole point about getting public compliance is that they have to feel that you're on their side um, if you're not going to do it in an authoritarian way. And I think, you know, the government coming out with threats and fines and, and all kinds of things was probably not the best way forward. Um, on the other hand, although there have been some, some rather uh, shocking instances of people receiving very high fines for, for non-compliance. Mostly, people haven't been directly affected by that. Um, and mostly, uh, eventually, we managed to get some control over the pandemic. I mean, I think it, I would question uh, Lord Sumption's argument that the virus was not a threat to most people. The point is that even if young people themselves, for example, were not going to suffer severe symptoms, and many have actually uh, suffered long COVID, but even if they weren't going to, they posed a very significant threat to uh, older and more vulnerable parts of the population. Uh, and it was absolutely crucial to prevent the virus from spreading uh, amongst everybody, really. So I, I think it's the government was, was right to be very clear and assertive in its actions. The question is whether it went about it in the best way. Thank you very much, Professor Dominic Abrams, uh, Professor of Social Psychology at the University of Kent. An interesting text from uh, Pete, who's just gone in touch with us. 8722 is how to do that. Start your message with the word times, otherwise uh, TalkSport will be reading it out. Pete says, uh, morning, Luke, regarding compliance with COVID advice, if, if I do my utmost to comply with COVID advice, I may never know how many lives I have saved. If I go against the advice, I may never know how many lives I have taken. I know which I would prefer it to be. Your view is always welcome. At Times Radio is how to contact us on Twitter. You can email us as well, studio at times.radio. We'll continue thinking about this, the pandemic, and, and what it's done to our, our relationship with authority in the UK. In a moment, we'll pick the brain of a, uh, of a former top cop. It's 11.24. I'm Luke Jones, in for Matt Shawley.
Mariella Frostrup, tomorrow afternoon from 1 on Times Radio. Join me, Mariella Frostrup, for in-depth discussion of the day's topical news stories. Plus, hear exclusive interviews with new and leading creative voices from the worlds of art, literature, film, music and more. Explore the ideas that shape our times with original perspectives from across the political and cultural spectrum. Mariella Frostrup, tomorrow afternoon from 1 on Times Radio. This is Times Radio. Luke Jones in for Matt Chorley all week. We're discussing how the pandemic has has changed our relationship to authority, that this incredible year and a bit, uh, the rules that we've had to live under, how our relationship has changed with uh, the government, uh, with the scientific establishment, but also, of course, with law enforcement as well, with the police. Live with us is Sir Peter Fahey, former Chief Constable for Manchester Police. Good morning. Good morning. We were just hearing from uh, Lord Sumption there, uh, quite a drastic view in terms of what the pandemic has done to undermining our um, undermining our faith in what the government is telling us. I wonder what you think the damage has been to the police. I I take a more you know long term view on this. Really, Uh, I think the pandemic has been really fascinating. It uh, has shown the difference between policing in this country um, and policing in in a lot of our neighbours. you know, actually policing has been very light touch. There have been one or two examples where people felt it was a bit, uh, you know, over the top. Use of drones in the early days in Derbyshire comes to mind. Yeah. But generally, the, you know, the police have um, taken a very common sense, balanced approach. Um, when you look at the levels of enforcement and fines in this country compared to many other countries, it's much, much lower. Some people have complained that we should have had stricter enforcement. But I think when you now look at, for instance, the death rates uh, between us and, say, France and Spain and Italy, where there was you know, far harsher policing, it doesn't seem to have brought about a, a big difference. And overall, you know, I, I would uh, uh, agree with the, the academic who spoke to say that pl- most people are law abiding and they will abide the, obey the law if they think that it's a reasonable law, it's a legitimate law, mm. um, and that the people enforcing that law themselves are behaving legitimately and as well as, you know, there's, there's a reasonable chance of being caught, I think. But I, I take your point that, um, that, that for most people, the pandemic hasn't seen uh, the police knocking on their door or, or enforcing the rules. People have broadly gone along with it and taken their instruction from 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 government ministers and scientists on the like on the television but if at the end of this we are generally more skeptical of laws being being made of rules in place if we leave this pandemic more libertarian that makes the job of the police a little bit harder going forward doesn't it if that consent element has been nibbled away at Yes, possibly. Um, but, a bit, you know, I think, you know, policing in this country has always been about policing by consent. You know, uh, again, we're very different. We have um, 51 separate police forces. We don't have a national police force. Uh, and policing in this country has always been, um, you know, very conscious of the fact that uh, generally uh, British people do not like the power of the state. And that has very much influenced the style of policing in, in this country and the level of cooperation that whole the policing gets. You know, we don't have anything like the National Guard um, or the Gendarmerie or the, um, you know, the Carabinieri in Italy. You know, it's, it's a particular style that uh, British policing has, has used. Um, but at the same time, you know, I think there are wider issues affecting policing. Um, police officers themselves will say they've been very confused throughout the pandemic because of all the changes to the legislation, um, you know, they have had to concentrate more and more um, on what might seem as sort of social services type duties of uh, supporting people going through mental health crises and the rest of it. And, and, and therefore, you know, that they are very frustrated. A lot of the other crime issues that they like to be able to concentrate on, you know, they don't have the resources to do. And I, and I think that is the longer term bigger threat to policing, mm. that in a lot of parts of the country, you know, policing is not seen as particularly relevant. And on things like online crime, that is affecting most people, you know, the, the police and the wider criminal justice system uh, don't really have a solution. And of course, we also had the debate about the very low level of women, for instance, that are reporting sexual assault um, and harassment. So, you know, I think overall that, you know, there are wider themes here at play. Um, and overall, in terms of the pandemic, um, you know, the police have shown a lot of common sense um, and the public have been pretty law abiding because they've seen the threat. They've seen the pictures on the television 
um, about the way the NHS has been overwhelmed. They have huge affection and support for the NHS and they've wanted to support that. And, and I think that has always been far more influential than any government, you know, uh, messaging, um, you know, any, any, any threats from the prime minister. But I just I wonder, moving away from the population as a whole and, and looking specifically at those constituencies who who rubbed up against the police, thinking about, you know, be it uh, women wanting to uh, hold a vigil uh, near where Sarah Everard disappeared or uh, Black Lives Matter protesters who wanted to take to the streets even though there were restrictions. Those people who've had a a bad experience with the police or people who have sympathy with those people who have seen all of that playing out on the television or heard it on the radio, um, how difficult is it for the police to undo that mistrust? Well, I think, you know, we've got to be honest and say some of that mistrust has always, you know, been there. Um, and policing yeah. of protests in this country is extremely complex because, again, it comes up against, um, you know, the, the fact that British people feel very passionately about the power to protest. Um, and the way that the police approach it has always been different mm. from, from, for instance, the way that the French police uh, approach protests in, in, in France. Well, yes. But it has been obviously complicated by, obviously, the coronavirus legislation. That was particularly difficult during during the summer, particularly for the Metropolitan Police, um, you know, and, and there will be some implications from that. But but overall, I think policing wants to hold on to uh, this idea that, they, you know, their job is to try and facilitate protests, to, po- to at all possible negotiate with the protesters. Um, and I think, again, the more worrying thing that is affecting policing at the moment is they're more concerned about some of the legislation going through mm. um, and, and some of the, you know, the interference they're seeing from national politicians. Sir Peter Fahey. That is it from the Times Red Box podcast. Thank you very much for, for listening, for downloading. If you subscribe, if you say you like the podcast, wherever asked, that always helps. Remember, you can listen to this show live. It's a lot longer, slightly better, a um, bit more rambly, on Times Radio at live from 10am uh, till 1pm, Monday to Friday. Usually Matt Chorley. I'm Luke Jones sitting in. Speak to you tomorrow. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hey guys, welcome to Giggly Squad, a place where we make fun of everything, but most importantly, ourselves. I'm Paige DeSorbo. I'm Hannah Burner. Welcome to the squad. Giggly Squad started on Summer House when we were giggling during an inappropriate time. But of course, we can't be managed. So we decided to start this podcast to continue giggling. We will make fun of pop culture news. We're watching fashion trends, pep talks where we give advice, mental health moments, and games and guests. Listen to Giggly Squad on Acast or wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. <laughs>